0: This event takes place the day after Jesus rode into the city. You remember the triumphal entry, which happened on a Sunday. He rides into the city with people shouting all sorts of encouragements, Hosanna to the Son of David. And this event happens the next morning as he's coming from Bethany, where he was staying a couple kilometers away from Jerusalem. He and his disciples are walking into the city, and this event transpires. And then he goes into the temple mount and cleanses the temple and chases out the money changers. Now you'll see in Matthew's gospel, the ordering is a little different. Not because Matthew is contradicting uh, the actual order, but because, remember, Matthew is kind of putting everything together, showing us the logical connection or the, the theme, thematic connection. Whereas Mark tells us the actual chronology. So in Mark 11, we find out that this is actually taking place that morning. Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. He and his disciples go back to Bethany. And it's not until the next morning, actually, that the disciples find that this tree Jesus had cursed the day before is fully withered away. And that's when they make their comment. And we'll see why that is as we go. But what we'll see here is a sign, a sign by Jesus, and then a question by the disciples in awe and wonder, followed by a promise, a unique promise by Jesus. Let me read verses 18 and 19 again. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, which, by the way, that, that instance of being by the road means that it was anyone could eat off of it. It wasn't in someone's farmland or anything like that. So that this is important that it's by the road. So Jesus is not taking something that doesn't belong to him. This would have been available for any. A fig tree by the road. He went to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. What's going on here? Well, This is a sign of sorts, but Jesus' cursing of the fig tree at first glance looks very arbitrary and a bit capricious, we might say. Is Jesus really acting like a a petulant sort of child because he's really hungry and grumpy? many critics of the New Testament actually will point to passages like this and say, well, see, Jesus' behavior in instances like this shows that he's not really acting in a proper way. And so, therefore, he's not who he claims to be or we can't trust him all the time or sometimes his actions are suspect. But remember that the gospel writers themselves, the people who wrote this down and observed it firsthand, they believed that Jesus was God, that he was perfect, morally perfect, that he always did the proper thing, we might say, and yet they recorded this for us. So what that means is they didn't see a contradiction. They did not see a contradiction between what he is doing here and the fact of who he is, God, morally perfect being. But how are we to understand it here? Because if perhaps you're like me, when I was a young Christian, as I read through the gospel accounts over several years, I was troubled by this passage. I couldn't figure out what was going on. Why does Jesus act this way? And even if he did act this way, why is it important for us to know that he got upset at a fig tree? But remember that Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience who all would have lived, or mostly would have lived in the Middle East or at least been familiar with the customs of the Middle East. And for the Jewish people, still up to this day, the production of figs is part of their livelihood. It's it's part of what happens in that region. They're very familiar with it. It's part of their lives and culture. And many variety of figs are grown in that region still to this very day. The majority of those figs would all blossom or bear fruit at the same time of year. But there were a few varieties that would do it at different times of the year. But the key for figuring out if a fig tree had produced any fruit was whether or not it had leaves on it. Because the fig tree has a very interesting peculiarity about it. That is, what happens first is it first produces fruit, and then leaves. So if leaves are on it, there should be fruit on it. And that's why the text shows us this. It says he found nothing on it except leaves. He sees it from a distance. He sees the leaves, but he comes closer, and there's no fruit. Something's wrong. If there's leaves, there should be fruit. And so Jesus is right to take exception, you might say, to this fruit tree that's not acting in a proper way. And Jesus' response to the fig tree is very much like an Old Testament prophet. You remember that after Jesus entered into the city, the triumphal entry, his disciples are following and the crowds are cheering, and then someone asks the crowds, "Who, who is this person? What's all the hubbub about? They say, oh, it's a prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Jesus is about to act exactly like a prophet would act in the Old Testament by using something, an everyday occurrence, an everyday thing close by to make a prophetic or a theological point. And so he's going to do this, so to speak, uh, give a parable in living color by the action that he's giving. He pronounces a curse on the fig tree, and subsequently the fig tree withers and dies. But the wording here um, in Matthew Different translations use it differently, but the original wording is very important. It doesn't mean that he curses it and within a few seconds it's withered and dead. It means from the moment that he placed a curse on it, it began to wither and die. And Mark gives us a little more of the details and the timing where he tells us very clearly by the next morning it had completely withered and died and that's when the disciples see it as they're walking past it again the following morning. And they comment to Jesus, Jesus, look at how quickly this has withered away. You cursed it yesterday. Now, of course, if a fig tree, or any tree for that matter, um, dies, whether that's because some sort of disease or uh, insect or something attacks it, it's completely out of the question for a tree to wither and die within a 24-hour period or less. That's not how it works. It takes time. Just recently... Our two little boys were very excited because a few doors down from us, there's a massive tree in one of our neighbor's backyards, and you you can see it from a a great distance. Um, But all of a sudden, one morning, all these different trucks and um, machines pull up, and they were apparently, as we walked down to see what was going on, uh, they were apparently going to take out that tree. And I said, oh, you know, as it died, I said, yeah, it's been dead for a while. And if we don't take it out now, within a year or two, it's going to fall over. And if that thing fell over, it would destroy one or two houses at least. And so they were going to take it out. Well, what had happened there? They had done some testing. They had looked at it. And the the owners had, had acknowledged what had happened. It looked a little bit like it had life on it from the branches. But it had been long dead for years. And slowly the decay was starting to creep further and further to the point where if something was not done, it would cause major damage. That's that's how things typically work, but not here. The fig tree withers away within 24 hours, clearly a miraculous occurrence as a result of this curse that Jesus placed on it. Remember that, that Matthew's far more concerned with how the themes of everything fit together and how... Uh, What Jesus does tells us something about who he is than he is about the chronology of when exactly it happened So he kind of mashes all of this together and that's okay for his purposes But it's essential to note that Jesus is not doing something here because he's grumpy Or because he's hungry and so he's lashing out at this tree Uh, rather he's making a crystal clear statement about Jerusalem, and especially the religious leaders. And you remember, if we understand the chronology, he's just about to go onto the Temple Mount and chase all the people who are selling animals and who are exchanging money and robbing the people blind. All the religious leaders and their fraud he is about to confront. So this is an illustration of the curse that he's about to bring on the religious leaders especially. It was a vivid picture of God's judgment on hypocrisy. What is a hypocrite? Of course, we use that term today, but originally it meant a play actor. Someone who is playing a part that they uh, are not actually that person or that, that being, that individual. Someone who acts like something they're not. And the religious leaders were being hypocrites, the biggest hypocrites, that Jesus had to deal with. They were spiritual frauds in his day. And he shows them this over and over. But before he openly confronts them on the Temple Mount, before he openly confronts them in front of the people, pronounces a curse on them, and pronounces judgment on them, He does it first to the fig tree in order to symbolize what he's about to do to the religious leaders. Now, by its outward appearance, this fig tree, what was it doing? It was broadcasting that it had health and vitality. It had leaves, therefore it should have fruit. But subsequently, it should have been covered with that fruit, and it's not. So it's a fraud. What was promised on the surface was not actually the reality. And the same was true of the religious leaders and the Jewish people as a whole. The people of God, the ones who had a covenant relationship with God. If anyone was supposed to show some spiritual fruit, to have some understanding of the one true God and how they were supposed to act and operate and live, it should have been the Jewish people and the religious leaders should have been the the leaders. But they were actually the greatest frauds. And so Jesus took advantage of the object lesson. He seizes the moment. He, He seizes this opportunity and pronounces a curse on the fig tree and hypocrisy. But, you know, hypocrisy was not just something the religious leaders of the Jewish people of Jesus' day dealt with. It's it's a problem that all human beings deal with, not least of which are Christians, of course, because it's one of the most pervasive and insidious of sins. It's quite hard to figure out when you yourself are being a hypocrite as a Christian because we like to deceive ourselves. And so the way hypocrisy works is that we get seduced by it and we're the last persons to realize that we're doing it. It's like having a a blind spot in the car when you're driving. When we take the name of Jesus, we declare ourselves to be Christians. And so subsequently, fellow Christians and our friends and neighbors who aren't Christians, they expect us to live like Jesus, to be different, to be pure, to be humble, to be good. Now, sometimes their ideas of what that exactly means aren't exactly what the Bible says. We understand that. But they do expect something different. I always find it really... Humorous um, when I'm speaking with uh, non Christians at any event or, or just out in public, doesn't matter. Um, and as soon as they find out I'm a pastor, uh, in the next few moments, if something happens and they decide to use a curse word or take God's name in vain or something like that, immediately they realize what they did. And they're like, oh, I'm so, so sorry, so sorry, pastor. I'm like, well, you didn't hurt me. <laughs> That's, I, I'm not going to cry about that. Um, but it, it's just an interesting thing that happens because why? Well, they, they realize there's something, because I'm a Christian, or because I'm a pastor, that they realize there's a different sort of standard there. And that makes sense. But too often, be, perhaps what happens is we actually, as Christians, display less fruit than we should. We're not as diligent in our spiritual growth as we should be. And too often, because we're embarrassed by our failings and not producing the spiritual fruit that we should be producing, what do we do? We end up play-acting and pretending that our spirituality is greater than it actually is. We we end up putting on a front. This is really easy to do for a Christian when they walk into a church. How you doing? Great. Praise the Lord, brother. Now, y'all don't do that very much. But um, in the southern United States where I grew up, like, that's the thing. Oh, brother, I'm praising Jesus today. Well, no, you're in sin, but you're covering it up. Now this can be done in different ways. That's just one cultural form of how it can work. But the, the problem is, this hypocrisy is very easily widespread. It's seductive. It's deceptive. And we don't realize that we're doing it oftentimes. But notice that this passage, what Jesus does in condemning the tree, he doesn't condemn the tree in the sense of pronouncing judgment on it because the tree is not producing enough fruit. Why does he pronounce judgment? Because it's not producing any fruit. But it's proclaiming loud and clear, I have a lot of fruit. But it has none, actually. That's the issue. And and similarly, for Christians, Jesus does not condemn a person who claims to be a Christian, but they're not as much like Jesus as they should be. He, He doesn't pronounce judgment on someone who claims to be a Christian that doesn't have enough fruit but on someone who claims to be a Christian and has no fruit, because that's a contradiction of terms. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, he said this, "...not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles." Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, true spiritual fruit is not the same thing as religious activity. Let me say that again because this is an extremely important point. True spiritual fruit is not the same thing as religious activity. The people in that passage that Jesus mentions who will stand before him on judgment day had massive amounts of religious activity. The religious leaders in Jesus' day had massive amounts of religious activity, far more than any single person in this room will ever have. But they had no spiritual fruit. And here's how insidious this hypocrisy becomes in the life of a Christian. Because we quickly, and if we're not extremely careful, we often substitute real spiritual growth and spiritual fruit. And we substitute that out religious activity. We say, see, I'm going to church. See, I try to read my Bible. I go to that Bible study. I do this thing. I don't do this thing. I I, I help out with the welcoming team, whatever it is. I do religious activity. Therefore, that's my spiritual fruit. And Jesus says, no. The whole New Testament screams, no, that's not spiritual fruit. Now, if you have true spiritual fruit, yes, it will result in some religious activity. It will result in you wanting to be involved at church. Christians are told to use their spiritual gifting to serve each other at church. That's true. But, just because you have religious activity doesn't mean you have spiritual fruit behind it. And if you don't have any spiritual fruit, then you have no spiritual life. And if you have no spiritual life, then you're not a Christian. So this is exceedingly important for us to understand. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had religious activity up to their eyeballs. If you looked at their resume, their CV, it was covered with, with religious activity. It was also covered with a great deal of biblical knowledge and spiritual knowledge. But spiritual knowledge and religious activity are not the same thing as spiritual fruit. Sadly, the church often has failed to learn this lesson that Jesus teaches us here and in many other places in the scriptures. Many church groups even teach what is really a modern, well, it's not a modern day heresy, it's an ancient heresy. It's the idea that there's such a thing as, sometimes the terminology is, a carnal Christian This teaching holds that it's possible for someone to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to be a true Christian, and yet show no fruit, no spiritual fruit of a changed life. Such a person is said to be born again by the Holy Spirit, but still carnal in their flesh, or showing no spiritual life. Now, it is true that a Christian, a true believer, can be carnal in the sense that we still struggle with our sin nature, because all of us still have that. But it will be a struggle. If you're truly a Christian, you will actually be struggling against your sin nature and temptations to sin. You'll not be wanting to do that. You'll be fighting against it. That's not what this idea of carnal Christianity is talking about. Rather, it's it's this foolish idea, and it's a direct contradiction of biblical teachings, that someone can be born again and yet have no change of life. This is like saying that a, a child can be physically born and healthy It has no vital signs, no pulse, no breathing, and no brainwaves. It's a contradiction of terms. That's not how it works. And this is a dangerous doctrine. It's a heresy. Because it gives people a false sense of security that they are a Christian, that their sins are forgiven, that they will live forever with God, when actually, they're nothing of the sort. Often, when I speak with people, whether that's at church or other places, Um, I'll ask them to describe how they would describe themselves spiritually, whether they would call themselves religious or not and what that means and what's their background, those sorts of things. And I always find it fascinating because then it's an open-ended question and they can kind of respond however they wish. And time and again, I meet individuals who will tell me that they've been a Christian for 5, 10, 15 years, whatever it is, but upon further investigation, upon a few more questions, what what we quickly realize in the conversation is they have no spiritual fruit. No spiritual growth, no love for God, no love for his people. They don't go to church. They're not a member of a church. They don't read his word. They have no love for his word. They're living the exact same way they did before they became a Christian. What does that show? Well, it shows in situations like that, which are unfortunately widespread because of this terrible teaching that has been all too prevalent, that they have no spiritual life. And subsequently, there's been no spiritual life change. But Jesus did not curse the fig tree, once again, because it lacked enough fruit, but because it lacked any fruit. In essence, he's saying this fig tree is a contradiction in terms, just like a person claiming to be a follower of the one true God, a Christian, and has no spiritual fruit. That person is a contradiction in terms. They are not a true Christian. This tree was widely publicizing and claiming to have fruit, but it was a pretender, which begs a question. You, if you claim to be a Christian, are you a pretender? Are you pretending to be a Christian, giving false advertisement, so to speak, that you have religious vitality, but perhaps you've deceived yourself, and really all you have is religious activity, but no true spiritual fruit. Those are very different things. Jesus sees right through that hypocrisy, and he condemns it. He has contempt for it. He curses it. And he will reject that person on Judgment Day unless, unless that person repents. Part of the truth of the gospel is that we not only need to repent or turn from all the bad things we've done that break God's law, that's half of it, but the other half is that we also have to repent and turn from all the really good things like religious activity that we did that we thought would make God happy with us, as if we could buy him off. We have to repent of both the bad things we've done, and all the good things we did that we thought would be enough. We have to give up both. We have to stop using our religious activities in order to disguise the fact that we have no spiritual life, that we're not actually a Christian. We have to confess and forsake that sin and call it for what it is and then trust in Christ alone. And when a person is truly converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, they become, the Bible says, a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. And it says every Christian subsequently will have at least one spiritual gifting that they should be using in the church, we're told, in the New Testament. And it also says in the book of Galatians that they will produce spiritual fruit. It's inevitable. So if there's no spiritual fruit that screams out loud to us, there's no spiritual life. So that person is not a Christian. A sobering reality and reminder you know, I wonder if, if the Lord isn't speaking to some individuals through this passage right now, because something we've found over the last two years or so is uh, for many of us, perhaps those of you who are uh, very heavily involved or served the church in some way, you had religious activities you were doing, we could say, um, th- those just haven't been there because we haven't been able to meet together or something like that. And what happens in a situation like that, when you can no longer do the religious activities you were doing, it quickly begins to peel back what spirituality is there, if there's true spiritual life there. When you can no longer do the spiritual activities, those religious activities, it begins to show whether you have true spiritual fruit or not. And it shows itself in this way. Over the last two years, have you actually had a love for God's word? Have you been in his word consistently? we certainly can't claim that we didn't have time. All we had was time sitting at home. Have you been loving his people, your fellow Christians, and encouraging them, reaching out to them? Have you been growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What's been happening? What a tragedy if through this Experience, if we want to call it that, over the last two years. The Lord has kindly and graciously peeled back some layers and shown you, without the religious activity, you really don't have any spiritual fruit. Because you don't have spiritual life. If that's the case, then the best thing to do is to acknowledge it for what it is. Thank God that He has shown you that. And then repent and turn to Him. And pray that He will bring spiritual life into you as you repent of your sin and turn to Him alone the tragedy is so many who claim to be Christians just as Jesus said in Matthew 7 they'll get to judgment day and they will have deceived themselves throughout their whole life thinking they had spiritual life when all they had was religious activity and they won't realize it till judgment day what a tragedy if Jesus is trying to tell you that now and save you the pain and the horror of standing before him on judgment day and realizing it that'll be too late but it's not too late now. Well, his disciples respond in verse 20. They saw what he did. They were amazed. They realized this fig tree by the next morning had withered away. That's not normal. That's not natural. It's clearly as a result of his curse. They see it, and they see how quickly it happened. And they ask him, how, how is it that this happened so quickly? Well, of course, the obvious answer is because he cursed it and he has power. And so that's the result. Uh, But I love what C.S. Lewis reminds us of in a different context. Things like this, what Jesus was doing, uh, was nothing different than what Jesus, who is God, has done throughout eternity. Every tree that dies, or has ever died, or ever will die, has been a result, ultimately, of God's sovereign plan. He's in control of every tree that begins to flower and flourish and produce fruit, Physically, out in the world, he's, he's in, in charge of and sovereign over every tree that it begins to die or wither. What he did here was nothing out of the ordinary, in one sense. What was out of the ordinary or unique is the accelerated pace at which it happened as a result of his direct intervention. Now, those direct interventions by God, where his power is clearly displayed through a miraculous event like this, he always does it with a purpose always with a purpose. We must understand the purpose. But then he gives the promise here as a sort of rejoinder to the question that the disciples asked him. How did this happen so quickly, Jesus? Now, in one sense, they're amazed, and that makes sense. Like, this is an amazing occurrence. In another sense, these disciples have seen Jesus walk on water, calm a storm, raise someone from the dead, heal people of leprosy. So in another sense, like, compared to some of those things, I don't know how you think of it, but in my book, this is not as significant. But it's still amazing. It's clearly miraculous. And there is a sense in which they should be amazed. They are amazed. And they ask Jesus, how could this take place? How could it happen so quickly? And he responds by giving them a promise, a teaching. What's the teaching? When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. And they asked this question. Jesus replies, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt... Not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus is speaking here in response to their question about the power of biblical faith, Christian faith, we might say, focused on the nature of God, faith that's in tune with who Christ is and the the power of God, the will of God, and That type of faith, when when a Christian, a follower of God, has that type of faith, and it's not not something extra special that only certain Christians have. Any Christian can have this faith. It's not something we produce, it's something God produces in us. It's more a response that we make to what God is doing in us. And a person who responds in faith, choosing not to doubt, or to have a sort of doubting, troubled mind about things, a person who responds in faith through prayer according to the will of God, Jesus says that type of action, that type of prayer can become a catalyst for unbelievable actions or what we might call exploits or miraculous events, things that we could never do in our own power. Now, for what it's worth, there's no example of any Christian in history, for what it's worth, after this point, moving a mountain or getting a mountain to get thrown into the sea. What would be the point? what would that accomplish? It would be completely purposeless. It would be a purposeless display of power for no good reason. But God doesn't display his power pointlessly or purposelessly. Try to say that three times fast. He doesn't do that. He always has a purpose behind what he's doing and why he's doing it. Unfortunately, too many have misunderstood or wantonly twisted this passage to mean that whatever you want... If you claim to be a Christian, whether you have spiritual fruit or not, if you claim to be a Christian, whatever you want, if you just pray about it for ten seconds, and you name it and claim it, then God's obligated or obliged to give whatever you wanted. I really want a million dollars, Jesus, so I'm going to say that I have faith, name it and claim it, I'm not going to doubt, and then God owes me a million dollars. That's not what he's saying here. God is not some glorified, guaranteed wishing well. Jesus is speaking... Using a metaphor about this mountain being thrown into the sea. But but it's a real point that he's making. It's a real point. But the the proviso is what? If you believe. Now what he says here is is interesting, and we have to understand it in context. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. But this has to be taken in the context in which it's written. Uh, If you believe, that phrase excludes bringing purely selfish requests. Because if a person brings purely selfish requests, they're clearly not asking that request out of Christian faith. That that wouldn't make sense. If you're truly asking with belief, not doubting, with faith, not doubting, if you're asking from a position of belief, you're not going to be asking for selfish things. You're going to be asking for things that are a part of the outworking of faith. If you're asking selfishly, then it clearly can't be from God. It's not according to his will. It's not grounded in Christian faith. It's sinful, fleshly asking. And so he's saying that people who pray great things, we might say, according to God's will, from a position of faith, they're a Christian, they have the opportunity to see great things accomplished. He's encouraging people to run from apathy and indolence as Christians and to be bold, to be daring in their faith and what they ask for in prayer, to attempt great things for God and request great things from God, to dream big dreams and attempt great things for the work of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. This is what Charles Spurgeon called this passage, is what he called the grand checkbook of the bank of faith. I love that. The grand checkbook of the bank of faith. As if every true Christian is given a checkbook the moment they believe. Now that checkbook is not to be used for our own selfish ends, as we've just said. But it is a checkbook. It's already been co-signed by God himself. And he says, I want you to pray. I want you to come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. I, I want you to come. And when you come, don't just ask Piddling, everyday prayers. Oh, Lord, bless and help and keep and be with us. He's already promised to be with you. You're a Christian. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Oh, bless us, Lord. He's already blessed you more than you could ever possibly believe in Jesus Christ. The greatest blessing in the world. Don't just pray common, everyday prayers that are essentially meaningless because we know we need to pray and all of us get into this rut where we know we need to pray but we kind of pray the same things in the same way over and over again. But they're pretty much meaningless and if if we really stop to think, what am I actually asking God for? It's really nebulous. There's no real concrete thing that I'm asking God for or I'm asking him for something that he's already promised to do, which is a little backwards. So what he's saying here is that he is, in, he is telling his people, those who are truly following him, to pray bold prayers. To boldly come. To request a check. To fill in the blank check and say, God, please, I want to cash this. But remember, this isn't for selfish reasons. These are prayers, let me give you a few illustrations throughout church history. Prayers like what the great reformer John Knox prayed. The Scottish reformer, who prayed, Give me Scotland or I die. He was absolutely consumed in his lifetime with the fact that he wanted and he boldly asked, God, please bring revival. Bring a spiritual awakening to the people of Scotland. Turn them to you. Turn our nation to you. And in his lifetime, he got to see that request answered when a significant amount, a significant percentage of the people of Scotland turned to the one true God and trusted in Christ alone. And as a result, thousands, not only of people in Scotland, but thousands of people became Christians, and from that, thousands were sent out on missionary endeavors, on preaching endeavors, and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of others were affected for the gospel. Or William Carey, who is considered the father of modern missions from the Western world, he said this, attempt great things for God, and expect great things from God. In essence, what he is saying is the same thing that this passage is saying. If we add two words... It's, it's almost exactly the same. Pray and then attempt great things for God. And as you pray according to his will in belief and you then put feet to those prayers and you attempt great things for God, you need to also be expecting great things from God. You need to be expecting that he is actually going to respond to those prayers. And by God's grace, William Carey certainly saw that with the many thousands of missionaries who have gone out in part because of his testimony. Or William Wilberforce, the great Christian parliamentarian in England, who devoted his life, and his great prayer request was that God would allow him to stop the slave trade in all the British Empire, the greatest empire at the time. And by God's grace, three three days before his death, he saw that accomplished. God answered that prayer. It took him his whole life. Think of the hundreds of thousands of people who were affected by that. Not just the slaves but the ripple-on effect of that. Or Hudson Taylor, who prayed that the gospel would make inroads into inland China. Or we we could mention many others, men and women of faith. Not anything special about them. None of these men or other women that we could mention were super-duper extra-spiritual. They had the same amount of access to Christ as we do, the same amount of opportunity to prayer, the same amount of faith God-given, But they chose to listen to what Jesus said here and pray bold prayers according to his will and faith. So what are you boldly praying for, Christian? Are your prayers too small, too shallow? Do you pray in faith? Are you bold in imploring God for great things? Remember, he alone can do those great things. And and sometimes we say prayer changes things. It's kind of right, but not really. Prayer doesn't change anything. God changes things. But God, in his word, has promised to do the changing in response to his people doing what? Praying. That's the vehicle he's given. But it's actually he who's sovereignly over everything. He's the one who's going to act and change things. But he has then told his people to pray boldly to him for those changes that are in line with his will. So what bold prayer, O Christian, are you praying for your family? What bold prayer are you praying for our church? What bold prayer are you praying for the gospel advancements in this community and around the world? He's given us a promise. We can claim the promise. We can fill in the blank check and then leave it up to him. And if it's according to his will, he responds to great faith through great bold prayers. Praise him. Father, we thank you that you do respond to our prayers, not because of some magic formula we use or anything like that. We're just weak human instruments. But because you have ordained in your sovereignty to use human beings, your followers, we often get it wrong. We often don't follow you the proper way. And even when we are seeking to follow you and producing spiritual fruit and praying bold prayers, we fully acknowledge that Really, all of that comes from you. You're the one who, give us, who gives us spiritual life if we're a Christian. You're the one who's really producing that fruit. You're the one who's uh, bringing us to the point of praying those bold prayers. But yet, you're pleased to do it. You're pleased to work in and through us, weak as we are. May we be men and women, husbands, wives, children, children, We know You. May we be Christians who claim this promise and the many other promises You've given us about prayer and come boldly before Your throne through prayer and ask for these things, not doubting, but believing them in faith and submitting them to Your will and Your purposes. And then allow us to be a part of the process to put feet to our prayers and act. And may You bring forth wonderful fruit out of it. Father, I also pray finally for any of those here who aren't yet Christians or perhaps they thought they were a Christian, but maybe they're realizing for the first time that they have a little bit of religious activity, but no real heart change, no real spiritual fruit. And help them to acknowledge that, to be honest about it, to realize the severity of their situation and that you condemn it. And that if they don't want to be condemned on Judgment Day, the best thing to do is to ask for your forgiveness now and that you would give them true spiritual life now. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.